Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Well, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, there are a few things that we could talk about um, that are more difficult and heart-wrenching than the topic of divorce. Many of us, if not all of us in this room, have been impacted by divorce in one way or another. Uh, for some, just, I mean, we're, this is going to... We're going to be very clear, all right, very honest throughout this whole conversation. I don't think there's a better way to do it. Uh, but for some of you, you sit in here as a divorced person. Perhaps as I read that text, you were reminded of the pain and sorrow that happened in that season of life. Maybe you remember the fights, the tears, the hopelessness of, marriage, of a marriage that was once full of promise. Uh, maybe you remember the friends that turned their back on you. I don't know. There's a lot that goes into um, those circumstances. For some of you, you sit in here on the brink, to be honest, the brink of divorce. And right now you wonder, how in the world is God going to reconcile my marriage? Maybe you're wondering, like, should I just throw in the towel? Can I even do that? Some of you, like me, you are a child of divorced parents. You remember the sting of what it felt like when you learned that your mom and dad would no longer be husband and Wife, I, I know for me, part of my story is that it was on Father's Day. Um, we were going to do a big party at my sister's house, and uh, I walked into the kitchen, and there was a little note, a little posted note on the fridge that just said, can't do it anymore, and that my dad was gone. And I would only see him one other time before he died. And as a child of divorce, you wonder, how has that shaped me, really? Um, what would it life be like if my parents had stayed... Together, as a parent, I'm sure that you, you wonder and you have a fear of, have I scarred my child in some way? But when it comes to divorce, this topic, there's just no way to get around it. It is filled with pain. There is a sorrow that runs deep. And so the topic of divorce, this topic today, you may not have been ready for it, for us to discuss this. It may be difficult, but my prayer is that God might begin a journey or continue a journey of healing for you as an individual, maybe reconciliation with others, a spouse or someone else. Um, but let's not, I don't want to start with just, this is going to be the worst day ever. There is hope here, right? There is hope because our God is a God of hope. Um, now, first, I want us to be on the same page about how, how hard my job is today, Okay. Um, there are so many challenges when talking about a topic like divorce. I could focus on the warning of divorce, 
a warning against contemplating divorce. This could be a sermon that focuses on compassion, compassion on those that have been impacted and hurt by divorce. This could be a sermon just focused on a, a plea for reconciliation and restoration, right? That we could talk about how divorce is not the unpardonable sin. So there is redemption and forgiveness for those who have chosen to go down that path. And the reality is that there will be a mix of all those things today, but it would be impossible for me to cover everything fully, okay? I just want to make that clear. Um, Theologically, pastorally, exegetically, I mean, it would just be impossible, okay? That's the first challenge. The second challenge is that each couple, each child, each person is unique, and their situation typically stands alone. So each, we have to understand this, each scenario and situation that you walk into here with, that is unique to you. I have not encountered, I'm, I know I'm young, but I've had some experience, but I have not encountered yet any situation in a marriage where one situation was just like the other. They are unique. Each one has its own circumstances. I mean, just in my short time here at Renewal, we've only been around four times, uh, four years, but there have been several situations. Um, where divorce was contemplated. And each one was different. And right now, you have your situation. And you might think, well, I wonder what my home group, I wonder what my pastor, I wonder what the elders think about my situation. So it's hard. I say that because it's hard to just throw out blanket statements, which I think is where pastors get in trouble a lot of the time. They throw out these blanket statements but they're not considering the circumstances of the people of God. For example, let me give you just a couple of examples. These are the the big ones, okay? Uh, Let's say that a husband has an affair. He confesses his affair to his wife and is repentant of his sin, but he, he wants to save the marriage, but she doesn't. She files for divorce. She says, I don't care. Well, is that permissible? Are they free to remarry then? Or let, let's say a wife comes forward and says, my husband is psychologically, he's emotionally abusive towards me. Are those grounds for divorce? Or, or let's say that you have a non-Christian couple. They get married, then they later get divorced, and years later, the husband becomes a Christian, or one of them becomes a Christian, and realizes that the divorce was wrong. Is he then obligated to reconcile and remarry his ex-wife, who's not a Christian? What if it, it turns out she marries somebody else? Is he free then to remarry? Or what if a remarried couple realizes they have entered into that marriage in sin? And they wonder, are we committing adultery by staying together? Should we get divorced? If we stay married, can we be members of the church? Can we be in leadership? There are so many different scenarios. Those are the big ones. I could spend this entire time just giving you scenarios, right? Which would be a cop-out for me, because then we wouldn't actually talk about anything Difficult are true. And the easy thing for me to do would be to say, okay, here is a one-size-fits-all statement. Here's a box, and we should never stray from that box. But Scripture doesn't make it that simple. It can be difficult with so many unique scenarios to take what we have in Scripture and apply them to our lives with wisdom and discernment. One last challenge that we have is because we are preaching through a book of the Bible, we are confronted with the topic of divorce without the buildup of the purpose of marriage. Does that make sense? So 
to really understand why divorce is bad, we have to understand the purpose and intent of marriage. But we don't really get that in our text today. Um, That's part of the give and take of walking through a book of the Bible verse by verse. The beauty of it is you can't ignore this. Like, we're going through Mark, and it's here. We have to talk about it, right? And not enough churches do. So the beauty is we have to talk about it. It's here. Um, But if you were doing a topical series, you could pick and choose what you wanted to talk about. And sometimes with a topic like divorce, it's better to put that into a topical series because you could spend a couple weeks on the design and purpose of marriage, and that would prepare you well to talk about the tragedy of divorce in light of the beauty of marriage. So all that to say, there are a lot of challenges. I'm not using those as cop-outs, but I just want you to understand where we are, okay? So be patient with me um, as I walk us through this. So after praying this week, here's where I think God is leading us to go. First, I want to briefly talk about the purpose and beauty of marriage and the tragedy of divorce. So the beauty of marriage and the tragedy of divorce. That will serve as our lens to be able to view divorce appropriately and with wisdom. Second, we will do our best to understand the biblical principles that are in Scripture for divorce and remarriage, okay? We'll do our best to understand them with the Spirit's help. And lastly, at the end, I will address three specific groups. So, first, the beauty of marriage and the tragedy of divorce. So, marriage is the sacred union between one man and one woman, and God's intention is for marriage to last until death. So look at our text in Mark chapter 10, verse 6. They come to Jesus with the question, the Pharisees, and this is Jesus' response. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God has joined together Let not man separate. So the ultimate meaning of marriage, again, this is brief. This is very much um, surface level. The ultimate meaning of marriage is the representation of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. To be married is to display the reality that God has made a covenant with you. Now, that's not the only reason that marriage exists, but that is one of the primary ones we see in Scripture, that God has united himself with you by making a covenant with you, that the church is blood-bought. Scripture says that we are the bride of Christ. God has joined us together, and man should not separate the unity that we have with Christ, that marriage is the ultimate display of the love and pursuit that Christ has for us. And here in our text today, the intent of the Pharisees, isn't, it isn't to have a real discussion about the purpose of marriage. They're attempting to discredit Jesus. The, the Pharisees, they intend to trap Jesus. They weren't interested in what Jesus actually thought. They wanted to test him. And we have to understand that everyone in the first century believed that divorce was per- permissible under certain grounds. The question was, on what grounds? On what grounds is divorce Permissible. Some Jews went further and said that divorce 
was required on certain grounds. So if something happened, it wasn't, you didn't pursue reconciliation, that divorce was required. And so the divorce, I mean, the Pharisees at minimum thought that divorce was acceptable in certain situations. They probably had a pretty lenient view of divorce. And the assumption from the Pharisees is that Jesus is going to have a more conservative view. Okay, maybe they heard his Sermon on the Mount. Maybe they wanted him to get him in trouble with Herod. I mean, remember, Herod killed John the Baptist because he spoke out against Herod's divorce and remarriage. And so Jesus responds to the test with the question, as he often does. He says, okay, what did Moses say? And they say, well, Moses allowed a man to divorce his wife. They're, they're referencing Deuteronomy 24, and, and we'll go there in a little bit. It's probably the key Old Testament text regarding divorce. So Jesus doesn't reject Moses' teaching. When you hear this, Jesus doesn't reject Moses' teaching, but he does recast it, okay? He essentially says, yes, Moses allowed divorce, but that was a compromise. So to counter them, Jesus goes back further than Deuteronomy, okay? He goes back to Genesis 2. That's a baller move by Jesus, okay? Um, So Deuteronomy gives marriages compromise. Genesis gives marriages intention. Does that make sense? Genesis gives marriages intention. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That he goes back to the beginning and says, this was God's design for marriage. One man and one woman united together to become one flesh. So you were two different people, two different paths, two different trajectories, two different fleshes. But in marriage, you become one. You are united together. Think of it this way. On your wedding day, if you were married, when you made that covenant with someone else, that was not your doing. Yes, you made the decision to be the wife or husband of someone else. But beyond that, it was God that united you. It was God that did that. And the main point that Jesus wants to get across here about divorce is that divorce was not part of God's design. In other words, divorce may be an option, Pharisees, according to the law. But that does not mean that it is acceptable. That's his point. Now, in a moment, we will talk about the circumstances where divorce is permissible. But before we even begin to think about that, we should remember that divorce is a tragedy. And when divorce happens, it should be grieved. I choose that word very carefully. I really thought about this. Like, how do you describe that, feel, that, that pain? Divorce should be grieved. I mean, like when you lose a parent, when you lose a friend, when you lose a child, you grieve that loss. And you grieve that loss because death is something that was never intended to be part of our original design. Death is a consequence of sin. Just like divorce is a consequence of sin. It's not something to be celebrated. It's not meant to give us relief. It's meant to be grieved. And so listen, man, if you are divorced, thinking about getting a divorce, a child of a divorced parent, you need to know your divorce, their divorce, whatever the circumstances, that divorce is to be grieved. There should be sorrow and sadness because under no circumstances was that divorce part of God's design. 
It's not God's intention. Now, as we'll talk about in a second, there may be circumstances where you may have to walk down a path a potential divorce. But that does not mean that we do not grieve it. It is a product of sin and it is a sign of the corruption of God's design. So whatever exceptions there might be in the law, the first thing that we need to hear from Jesus is that marriage is intended to be a reflection of the covenant that God has made with us, that you were two and you became one. There is a uniting that happens And divorce is a violation of the covenant that God has made with his church. And when it happens, it's a tragedy. And it is devastating. And for those of you that have been through situations, when I say devastating, you know it is devastating when it happens. But the goal of every marriage conflict should be restoration, healing, and reconciliation. Now, with that umbrella... With that said, let's talk about what Scripture specifically says about divorce and what is permissible. Let's try to understand the biblical principles of divorce and remarriage that are found throughout Scripture. So let me start by asking a question. This is rhetorical. You don't have to answer me, okay? Uh, It's a strange question. So is every divorce the product of sin? I would say yes. Yes, divorce at its core is sinful. It was not part of God's original design. But the next question is, okay, then is every divorce sinful? This is a different question. I would say no. Are there circumstances where you can get a divorce and not be in sin? I would say scripture says yes. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay, consider the Christmas story. Everybody here is familiar with the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary... They are engaged to be married, and it says in Matthew 1.19, this should be come up on the screen, it says, and her husband, talking about Mary, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So in first century Judaism, engagement was legally binding. It was basically you were married, but you weren't sleeping together or living together. So when Joseph sees that Mary is pregnant uh, and the child isn't his, he decides to divorce her quietly. And notice that in the ESV, it says that Joseph was a just man. And the emphasis is on the fact that he was just, why? Because he wasn't going to shame her. So if he could be called just, even though he was going to divorce her, I think we can infer that not every divorce is necessarily sinful. Okay, so in what instances then is divorce permissible? And I use that word permissible on purpose, and I'll I'll talk about that later. But one instance where divorce is permissible is instances of sexual morality, okay? So now we can turn to Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. It is no doubt that this is the text that the Pharisees were referring to When they spoke with Jesus. So let me read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. 
after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Okay, this is obviously a complicated situation, right? (laughs) Did you follow that? That was hard for me to follow. Um, It's a complicated situation that we are presented with in Deuteronomy. But what's important to note here is the very first line. So, when a man takes his wife and marries her, if if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That word indecency has been debated all throughout church history. (coughs) And especially during this time. And the question is, what does that word mean? It's only used one other time in the Bible, that word indecency. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 12, so go back like one page, and Deuteronomy 23, 12 says, you shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. I bet you didn't know that was in the Bible, all right? Verse 14, because the Lord your, uh, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. So same Hebrew word, indecent, could be something repulsive, could be something offensive. It's a broad phrase. And because it wasn't easily defined, the Jews and the rabbis would argue about this all the time. There were two primary schools of thought, okay? There was the conservative school of thought, the Shammai, right? The Shammai held that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression, such as sexual immorality. And then there was the more liberal school of thought, the Hillel. The Hillel allowed for divorce for even trivial, trivial offenses. I mean, go and read their stuff, okay? And they, they said that indecency could qualify with things such as, and I'm not kidding, burning a man's toast, okay? It was a much looser definition of indecency, okay? Um, now, turn to Matthew 19, Go to Matthew 19. This is the parallel account of the story in Mark. But Matthew adds a little bit more that is helpful for us. So Matthew 19, verse 9. We get this extra moment from Jesus. Parallel story. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So, Jesus, in this debate, sides with the Shammai. So the question is, why does Jesus say that sexual immorality is the only exception here? Or is an exception? Um, Here's my conclusion. Marriage is a covenant. It is not centered on feelings, but rather it is centered on commitment. And with every covenant, there is a seal, a symbol, And sex is the seal of marriage. It's like signing on the dotted line. So if you have sex with someone else, then you are breaking that covenant. And there you have permissible. So Jesus here is saying that there is an exception for an instance in which there is sexual immorality. Now, and we'll talk about that more later, but some of you may be wondering, okay, was that the only instance in scripture where we that where divorce is permitted no 
turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Go to 1 Corinthians 7. So divorce is permitted, and I say that again, it is, I say permitted because it's, it's not preferred. It's permitted. It's not required. It's permitted on certain grounds. One of them is sexual morality, and the second is on grounds of what is called desertion by an unbelieving spouse. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Paul says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. So that little parenthesis, that is Paul's way of saying, look, I'm just quoting Jesus, okay? So he goes on, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So if someone gets a divorce without biblical cause, they should try to reconcile with their former spouse. And if they cannot be reconciled with their former spouse, then they should stay single. We'll talk about that more later. But look at verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Now, why does Paul add that parenthesis? Well, Paul is saying, the last statement I said comes from Jesus, but this statement comes from me, which, by the way, Paul has been given authority by God to say this to us. This is inerrant. This is infallible words of God through Paul. And he says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So according to Scripture, a second cause for divorce that is permissible is called desertion by an unbelieving spouse. That The Bible says that if you are married to an unbeliever, then you should not divorce that person. But if the unbeliever chooses to divorce you, the believer, then you should let it be so. So we have two grounds for divorce here. Sexual morality and desertion by an unbeliever. That is the traditional position that church history would hold. It's also the position that we would hold as well. And I would say that divorce in either of those cases is not required or even preferred Okay, now, having said that, and here's where it can get sensitive. So I want to be careful. I am sympathetic to, but also extremely cautious about finding other grounds for divorce. Okay, let me just give an example uh, that that is very, um, it's an important topic today. Let me talk about abuse real, quick, real fast. This is a topic uh, that the church needs to be talking about and needs to be clear on. Um, there's a lot of disagreement with this topic. It's a sensitive topic. Um, there have been churches that have been sued for this topic. There have been churches that have just completely dropped the ball on this subject. Um, and this is why I also say each circumstance must be evaluated on its own because this is incredibly complicated subject. But first, just from the top, let me say this about abuse. If you are in an abusive relationship, let me just say it as clear as possible, 
then we would encourage you to remove yourself from that relationship as quickly as you can. Now, there isn't anywhere in Scripture that would explicitly, when I say explicitly, I mean it is clear as day, explicitly say that that is cause for divorce. But, and this is my opinion, okay? So I want you to hear that too. This is my opinion. It would be hard to convince me, Colton White, that abuse, actual abuse, legitimate, that abuse is not a breaking of the covenant that was made. I'm just being honest here. I struggle with the question, does that equal to desertion of an unbelieving spouse? So let me explain that a little bit more. In cases of abuse, I I would question the authenticity of the faith of the one doing the abusing. And therefore, I would question if the abuse is equivalent to an unbelieving spouse deserting the covenant that they made to that spouse. So if you are currently in a situation where you're being abused, we wouldn't know, probably, most of the time. That stuff is hidden. But if you're being abused, I would say, one, remove yourself and your family from that environment and let the people of God come around you. Help you find the healing that you need in the gospel. Let me say this too, if you are an abuser, if you are abusing your spouse and your children physically, emotionally, I don't care, then you should repent today. You should cry out to your God in desperation and repentance. We will come alongside you. We will point you to the gospel. We will connect you to counselors, resources. But hear this too, that does not mean that you deserve access to your family. Okay? So, I would sympathize with certain situations that that came up. Should I get a divorce in this circumstance? I would sympathize. And there would be investigation. There would be consideration. There would be a lot of conversation. But I'm, I'm also cautious of other situations. Because there are divorces happening in the world that are simply based on what makes people happy in the moment. Just because you don't have the same feeling for your spouse now that you had when you were 19 years old is not grounds for divorce. Marriage is a covenant. It's a commitment that displays the covenant that God has given to us, and it's not just to be thrown away lightly. So I am sympathetic towards certain situations, but I'm also very cautious. Now, before I move on, let me just say, when when it comes to situations like the ones I just mentioned, we have to understand it's rarely black and white. It is rarely black and white. It's complicated, it's messy, and it is so painful. It is so painful. And honestly, as a leader, it's, it's terrifying. It is terrifying that when someone comes to you, and you know that many of you know this, you're, you have a friend or you've been through this situation, someone comes to you with advice and you know that your words, man, they will be heard, and they will have an impact for the trajectory of that person's life. Does that make sense? It's terrifying. And so pray for us, your elders, that we would have wisdom and discernment in each and every circumstance. Because it is, it is honestly terrifying. And we cannot do this in our flesh. We need God's discernment. We need God's help. The best thing that we can do in those situations is stand firm on the scriptures that are clear 
proclaim the gospel of redemption to the people involved, and pray that God would bring healing and restoration. Now, let me talk about remarriage, okay? Um, first, Scripture clearly teaches that if a spouse dies, then, that, then the other spouse should be allowed to remarry. There is no one that questions this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Romans 7, 3, I mean, is clear as day. Spouse dies, then you can remarry. So that's that. Second, I do believe that remarriage is permissible if a divorce happens because of sexual immorality or desertion of a spouse. And if you disagree with me on that, that's okay. We can, that's something that we can as believers disagree on and still remain brothers and sisters. But let me tell you why I believe that. First, when you look at what Jesus said in Matthew 19, I believe that you would have to infer that he is excluding those that who have gotten a divorce because of sexual immorality from the restriction of being remarried. Let me read that to you again in Matthew 19.9. He says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So that clause, except for sexual immorality, leads me to believe that there is a scenario where those who have gotten a divorce because of sexual immorality can be remarried in freedom. But let me say this, okay? If you or someone you know is ever in a situation where your spouse or a spouse commits sexual adultery, I need you to hear this. That is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, okay? And I know that is difficult for some of you to hear. Just because you can do something, just because something is permissible, is not the same as encouragement to do something. I would say that, that in that situation, that is a last resort. You should do everything you humanly can to restore and reconcile a relationship that has been scarred by sexual morality. That's my opinion. So I'm just being honest. If you came to me personally, and, and you said, hey, my husband's cheating on me, my wife is cheating on me, I would not support the immediate, immediate decision of divorce. We, we, we will go down a road of reconciliation and restoration. And here's why. Because the essence of the gospel is the reality that God has stayed faithful to his bride, the church. Even when we, the bride, has cheated on him time and time again, we have not been faithful to our God, but he pursues us, he loves us, and he is faithful to us. And by the way, I'm, I'm speaking specifically of situations where the other spouse is repentant and wants to save the marriage. But God says of his adulterous bride in Hosea 2, he says, I will allure her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. So the first thing that I would encourage is to pursue reconciliation and restoration. Now, as far as remarriage and desertion as a spouse, if we look to 1 Corinthians 7.15, it says, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Notice that word enslaved. I think that that implies that the spouse that has been deserted is not bound and is now free to remarry. So, Now, one last thing on remarriage, and this is the complicated part. Let's say that you get divorced, and it was not because of a biblically permissible 
reason. Maybe you look back and if you're really honest, you just you weren't happy in that marriage. Maybe you were the one who was at fault. I don't know. But if you got divorced and are not remarried, so divorced and not remarried, should you abstain from getting married a second time? My answer, as far as I can tell from Scripture, is that remarriage, while a, while a divorced spouse is still living, is an act of unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant. That in that sense, to remarry is adultery. You promised till death do us part. Because that is what God says marriage is. And even if your spouse breaks his or her covenant vows, that does not mean that you have permission to break yours. That is what God has done with us. He has stayed faithful to us. That leads to another question. Should a divorced person who has remarried break off that second marriage? No. I do not think that a person who remarries against God's will and thus commits adultery in that way should later break a second marriage you, maybe I'll give you that that marriage maybe should not have been done. But now that it is done, it should not be undone by man. Does that make sense? It is a real marriage. Real vows have been made. Sexual union has happened. And that real covenant of marriage has been purified by the blood of Jesus. And it has been set apart by God. In other words, I don't think that a couple who has truly repented and has sought God's forgiveness, they have received his cleansing, I don't think that they should think of their lives as ongoing adultery. I believe that you should repent, and you should grieve the sin that was committed, but I also believe that God's grace is sufficient for you, and God will use that second marriage for his glory. Okay? Now, let me close by addressing three different groups of people. First, to the married in the room. Fight for your marriage, man. The love that you have in one another, it is rooted in nothing else but the love of Christ. He will sustain you, and he will use your marriage for his glory. If you need help from believers, ask your home group. If you need help from leadership, ask us. We would be glad to come alongside you in your marriage. Both Katie and I, we're both strong advocates of finding a biblically-minded counselor. In fact, we believe that every couple should see a biblically-minded counselor, regardless if you have the best marriage in the world or if you think you have the worst marriage in the world. We think that everybody should see a biblically-minded counselor. And if you ever wanted to seek out counseling, we would help you. We would even help you financially. Just ask us. But we want to see your marriage not only succeed, but we want to see it flourish, that you would be able to experience the joy that God has designed your marriage to be. And listen, if you are someone who thinks, I just don't see how God could reconcile my marriage. I'm ready to just throw in the towel. Let me remind you that we have a God who parted the sea. We have a God who placed the stars in the sky. We have a God who was dead and he rose from the grave. Do not assume what God can or cannot do. He's capable of all things. And look, man, Katie and I have been there. 
We've been there. Many of you know our story. But some of you don't. It wasn't but two years ago when it felt like Katie and I's marriage was just crashing. It felt like the walls were coming in. It felt like there was no hope for us. We found ourselves in a place that we never thought we would be. And we were wondering how in the world we would ever survive the circumstances we were in. But she fought for me, and I fought for her. When things got tough, she showed me who my God was, and I believe that I showed her that he's faithful, he is unrelenting in his commitment to me. And you, as the people of God, you fought for us. You prayed. And today, we have more faith in our God because in the wilderness, he met us. And he spoke tenderly to us, when we were desperate and we were hurting, and our marriage is stronger and healthier today because of the work that God did in our lowest moments. I wouldn't change a thing about it. So before you throw in the towel, remember who your God is. And remember that the people of God will fight with you. I would also say um, guard your marriage. Don't think that what you have seen others go through will never happen to you. That is a foolish thought. We are all capable of serious sin. And the moment you let your guard down, you are inviting the enemy to tear your marriage apart. Guard your marriage. Husbands, pursue your wives. Wives, encourage your husbands. But fight for your marriage, man. Don't give up. Your God has not given up on you. Second group. The divorce, but single. If you are divorced, then I just want to say from the pulpit, no one looks down on you. No one. You do not have a scarlet D on your chest. You belong here, and I hope you never doubt that. This group of people is nothing more than a, broke, a, group, of, a group of broken people redeemed by God. That's every single one of us. You belong here. And I praise God that you are here. Last group. To anyone here who is remarried and you are able to recognize that you probably should not have gotten a divorce in your first marriage. I would say that you can, on one hand, recognize the sin that was committed in repentance. You should grieve the sin and the loss of that union. While at the same time, there is freedom for you. There is redemption. There may be reconciliation that you need to pursue on a relational level. But there is reconciliation with your God. And God can use and will use that second marriage, your marriage. But let me close just by reminding you um, that, and, and I hope that this opens up dialogue in our home groups, in our church, with our marriages that we can talk openly with each other and trust one another to have these conversations. But let me remind you that you sit here right now and you're like, I don't, I don't know what tomorrow looks like. I don't know what next week looks like. I don't know what one year from now looks like. And, and it terrifies you. Let me remind you that he's already there. He's already there. He knows. He knows the heartache that you're going to have in this next year. 
And he, his promise to say faithful remains. He's here with you now. He will be with you then. He will never leave you. He will never desert you. And so circumstances may be difficult. He is present. 